going to jump straight into it. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Today we're looking at verses 16 all the way through chapter 3, verse 6. A lot of ground to cover. And so I'm going to go ahead and read our passage, pray for us, and then we'll get going. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Starting in verse 16, there at the end of verse 16, Apostle Paul says, And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Join with me again in prayer as we open up God's word. Father, again, as we've heard this morning, we know that you are a good and gracious God who has loved us, Lord. You have loved us by showing that towards us and sending your Son to be the propitiation for our sins, but not only that, for giving us your Spirit, your Spirit who has opened our eyes to behold the glory of Christ in the gospel. And Lord, it was by the work of the Spirit of God that we are regenerated. In fact, as we read in our passage today, we are a new letter of Christ. But Lord, we also give you thanks for your Holy Spirit, not only in his work in salvation, but his work to strengthen and equip us for ministry. I pray, help us to see what you would have for us in this text. Lord, we are not adequate in ourselves to do the work of ministry. Lord, help us to come to an end of ourselves so that we can see that you are the God who enables us. Lord, I pray for your help now, in Christ's name, amen. All right, the title of our sermon today just comes right there from chapter 2, verse 16, Who is Adequate? Who is Adequate? In the hearts of God's people, there's always been a sense of overwhelming inadequacy when it comes to our calling and ministry. All right, to comprehend the reality that, that God has not only saved us, but entrusted to us the pearl of the gospel, that God has called us now to go forth as his incense bearers, as it were, and to spread Christ's aroma. That is a privilege that leaves us just on our faces saying, God, we're so weak. God, we, we are nothing. Who are we, God, that you would so choose, so love, so care for us, that you would call us to go out into your world? All right, this was true of Moses. We think of Moses back in Exodus chapter 4 when he receives the call of all calls in the Old Testament from God in the burning bush to be the one to deliver God's people, to defy the the greatest nation at that time, to be the one who, who through God would display his matchless glory. God 
excuse me, Moses says in Exodus chapter 4, verse 10, he says, please, Lord, I have never been eloquent. As the Septuagint says, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, he says, please, Lord, I am not adequate. Moses realized his insufficiency. And so what does God, how does he reply to Moses' inadequacy? Yahweh replies this, he says, Moses, I will be your mouth. I will teach you what to say. In other words, Moses, I will make you adequate. This was true of Gideon in Judges chapter 6. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon under the oak tree there at Ophrah in Judges 6, he calls Gideon to deliver Israel. And what is Gideon's response to the Lord? He responds in utter, utter weakness. He says, Oh Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Again, God replies to him. He says, Gideon, surely I will be with you. You shall defeat Midian as one man. Gideon, I will strengthen you for the work. This was true of the prophet Jeremiah. When the Lord appointed Jeremiah to be a prophet to the nations, even from his mother's womb, Jeremiah cries out in Jeremiah chapter 1. He says, alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. Lord, I'm insufficient. I'm inadequate. I, I don't have the capacity for such a ministry. Again, Yahweh replies to him, says there, I am with you. I am with you, Jeremiah, to deliver you. Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day. Jeremiah, I will make you adequate. As we come here to our passage, we see that this was true of the Apostle Paul. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 through 10, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles. I am not fit, that is, I'm not adequate to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Christian, the same is true of you and I today. The same God who worked through the insufficiencies of Moses' speech, Gideon's reluctance, Jeremiah's youth, and Paul's checkered past is the same God who gives us grace today. Who is adequate for the glorious work of New Covenant ministry? Paul says here, it's all those whom God enables. Last week I argued that the theme of 2 Corinthians is defensive apostleship. That it seems within the Corinthian church as Paul was serving in Ephesus that a, a mutiny of sorts had occurred there within a Corinthian church. A group of false teachers advocating heresy had moved in attempting to lead the Corinthian church astray in order to accomplish their devious task, they had openly attacked Paul's character and ministry. Therefore, Paul writes to the church defending his character, defending his conduct, defending his, his past travel plans, and defending his ministry. And again, this is not a defense for his own personal reputation. He's not trying to puff himself up. He's not trying to gain notoriety just for his own personal sake, but rather so that he can protect his children in the faith. 
rather so that he can build this church up. And so the section that we currently find ourselves in is here as Paul is uh, defending his conduct in his ministry. We're looking here at chapter 2, and this section goes all the way through chapter 7, but we're just starting at the beginning. We're taking a running start. We're just trying to get as far as we can, and my goal, again, is try to work our way through chapter 3. And so we see the theme then of this section is that while Paul's opponents had claimed superiority in ministry, Paul reveals here in this section what true, authentic ministry looks like. And the picture I'm trying to help us think as we view what's going on here is that of a tapestry, like a master weaver weaving together an intricate pattern for a tapestry. Paul is weaving together in his defense a number of intricate patterns forming for us a glorious tapestry of authentic new covenant ministry. It's a tapestry in which we can gaze upon. We can look at the beauty of ministry here. We can look at the beauty of how Paul served the church, served in the gospel of Christ. But it's not just one that we can view in Paul's life, but also one that we are urged to glean from. One in which we can see and we can grow and which we can also replicate. And so then the the first pattern of authentic new covenant ministry that we studied last time was that authentic new covenant ministry abounds in triumph. Looked at verses 14 through verse 16. And despite uh, Paul's extreme suffering, the tribulations, the afflictions that he had in Troas while he he was waiting for Titus to uh, return, Paul says, nevertheless, I can give thanks to God. And then he unfolds for us. Why can he give thanks to God? He says, because he is being led in triumph. The Roman parade, this Roman triumph that was so common in the ancient world, Paul is likening Jesus Christ as the victor, as the, as the triumphant one, as the savior, the one who is leading this triumphal procession. That Christ, as we saw in Colossians 2, has triumphed over the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He has put them under bondage. He is now leading them as his captives, as his prisoners of war, as it were, showcasing his glory in them. But not just the evil forces, right? He's also leading a procession of hosts, of those whom he has liberated from bondage to sin and slavery. And Paul says then here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that he is going forward as a incense bearer, as one being led, spreading the aroma of Christ always at every time in every place. And what is the, the influence then? What happens as Paul goes forward spreading the aroma of Christ? Oh, he sees that there's two responses. There is, on the one hand, spiritual death. Those who take in the aroma of Paul and the ministry of the gospel, the message of Christ. And because they are dead in Christ, they smell Paul's life and they reject him. They reject what they hear in the gospel, what they see in Paul's life and his ministry. While on the other hand, there are those who breathe in the beauty, aroma of Christ and they breathe in life. And so they receive Paul and his ministry. So then Paul would seem, as it were, to to say that his life, his ministry, the gospel, is a litmus test of sorts to, to show the spiritual nature of the heart. And so it's in light of that grand responsibility, 
in light of that glorious privilege and position that, that he has and that all believers have going forth, spreading the aroma of Christ, it's in light of that, of this weight that Paul says at the end of verse 16, who, God, who is adequate for these things? All right, who are we, O oh God, for such a monumental task? How are we deemed fit to carry onward with such grand privileges and influential position? And so then that's Paul's focus then. From verse 16 all the way through chapter 3, verse 6, Paul is answering for us that question. Who is adequate? The answer Paul gives to his question is that authentic ministers of the gospel, authentic ministry of the new covenant does not find their adequacy in themselves, but in the God who enables them. That's the the theme of these verses here, is that we find our strength, we find our source of strength for ministry not in ourselves, but in God. Right, Christian, your, your adequacy does not come from your strength, does not come from your flesh, does not come from your wisdom, your own resources, your own power. It comes from God, his power, his grace, his gifts, his enablement. So then we see that authentic new covenant ministry requires divine enablement. This is the second pattern that Paul weaves here. That authentic new covenant ministry requires divine enablement. To show the Corinthians that God had divinely enabled Paul for the work of ministry, Paul presents here in these verses four qualifications. Four qualifications that show that that Paul's the man for the job. That he is the one divinely qualified for the work that God has given him. And not only are are these qualifications true of of the Apostle Paul, but these are also qualifications that are true for all authentic ministers of the gospel. So then let's look at the first qualification, which is pure motives. Pure motives, verses 16 through 17. Again, Paul starts off here with this question, who is adequate? Who is adequate for these things? He's crying out with this heart-wrenching, probing question. And as commentators rightly know, this really is the, th- uh, the, the key question of the book. Paul's opponents, are they adequate with their man-centered, legalistic, spiritualized health and wealth prosperity teaching? Or is Paul adequate with his God-centered, spirit-empowered, Christ-focused ministry? Who is the one that is adequate for the work? Who, Corinthians, should you follow? Should it be those guys or should it be me? Paul says it is me. I am the one who is adequate. The word adequate there has a variety of senses in the scripture. In context to a person's abilities, it speaks of one's competency, one's capacity. Are you worthy? Are you fit? Are you sufficient for such a position? That's what Paul's asking here is, is who's fit for such a role in the ministry of the gospel? Who is worthy for such ministry? Who can say that they have the competency and the capacity to serve in such a marvelous position? As I already pointed out, Moses, this is most likely an echo from the Old Testament that Paul is quoting Moses here from Exodus chapter 4 verse 10 as he cries out there and um, as I already noted, God, that I am not adequate 
right? That Moses says by himself, apart from God, he's not fit for such a calling. John the Baptist also says of his role, as he is the one who is the baptized Jesus, he says, I'm not fit. I am not adequate. I am not worthy to even untie his sandals. How much more so to baptize you, my Lord? And so what Paul's showing off here at the very beginning is that this is the, the attitude, this is the mindset that we have to have is one of humble insufficiency. That we come to the end of ourselves and see that we have nothing in and of ourselves fit for this ministry. But that's not all of the answer to the question. Really, that's only half of the answer because what Paul's gonna lay out here is he says, well, that's a good start At the same time, we need to understand that God is the one who enables us. God is the one who makes us adequate. God is the one who makes us sufficient for this ministry. It's not, well, man, I'm not adequate. I I don't have the right gifts. I don't have the right strength and right knowledge. I'm just not going to serve in the church today. Oh, I'm not going to go tell these people about the gospel. Oh, I'm not going to do X, Y, or Z. Paul says, no, that's not the attitude we have. Rather, we say, Lord, you can make me adequate. Lord, you can make me strong. It's not my capabilities, but it's you, God, who make me sufficient for these things. So unlike Paul's opponents who thought of themselves as more than adequate, Paul spoke and conducted his ministry with pure motives. The motives of of unauthentic ministry, Paul outlines for us at the beginning of Verse 17, he says that unauthentic ministry is characterized by greedy motives. That they are characterized by greed. Look at verse 17, he says, For we are not like many peddling the word of God. That word for peddling comes from the world of ancient retail. It refers to those in the marketplace whose greed would lead them into deceptive practices. They would intentionally manipulate prices, uh, intentionally manipulate their products in order to to make larger profits. Uh, It was often used of the wine merchant. The wine merchant would would take their wine and they would then dilute the wine in order that they can sell more wineskins in order that they could make a bigger buck. Others would include faulty scales for improper weight measurements and all kinds of sordid practices. But this term did not just stay in the world of retail, it actually became adapted to the intellectual world of ancient philosophy. Traveling philosophers were often likened to back alley con artists accused of peddling their knowledge and message for the love of money or the love of approval. For example, Socrates accused a certain group as, quote, those who take their doctrines the round of our cities, peddling them about to any odd purchaser. And so this was a common term, a derogatory term towards those in the philosophical world. But Paul says, not only is it true of the unbelieving world, this is even true in the church. He says that there are many. Note that he doesn't say there's some. He doesn't say there's a few. He says there's many. You could interpret that as the majority almost, if you wanted, who peddle God's word. There are many, he says, who are like fishermen who bait their message with artificial lures so as to to catch those inside the church with their deadly hooks. He says that there are many who slither their way into the church with their greedy lusts 
And so therefore they mix the word of God with false teaching and they replace the teaching of God with underhanded techniques. Paul says there were many in his day. Brothers and sisters, we know, right, that there are many in our day, right? All we have to do is just look out into our world today. We can see that there are churches around even here, even us, who are exchanging the truth of God for a lie, who are exchanging the true preaching of the word for underhanded techniques and entertainment-driven mentalities. There's many on TV. There's many on the internet. There's many in the bookstores. There's many around the globe who are peddling the word of God. It seems almost like everywhere we look, we see such peddlers seeking to rob people of their wealth and of their praise. Paul says, not I, not our ministry, not true, authentic ministry of the gospel. Unlike these imposters who have been harassing you, church, plagued by false motives, Paul says, my ministry, my message, is characterized by pure motives. An authentic ministry is characterized by pure motives. Look at verse 17. He says, but for us, we speak as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. The word for sincerity comes from the word sunlight, the word and the word to judge. I don't know about you, but my eyes aren't always the best. So if I really need to inspect something, I'm like, oh man, what does this say? I have to bring it up to the light. I bring it up to a lamp or get a flashlight, something else out to really look at whatever that might be. Paul's saying here, my life is held up to the inspection of light that you can look, you can examine, you can Study my life, as it were, and you can see that my message, my ministry are sincere. They are pure. They are spotless. That when I preach, Paul says, I don't do it for the money. When I minister, when I serve, I, I don't do it for the approval or the praise of men so that others would applaud me on the back and say how great you are. He says, my ministry is carried out with sincerity. But not only is it sincere, he also says that he speaks as one from God. This reveals the the source of his message. That when he speaks, he is speaking not his word, but God's word. The divine message that has been entrusted to him. He's going to go on in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20 and say, I am God's mouthpiece. I am Christ's ambassador. I am one that has been sent out from heaven's king with a heavenly peace treaty telling men and women everywhere to be reconciled to God. Therefore, as I go out, I go out with his authority. I go out underneath my king. Therefore, I have not the right to tamper with a word or to twist or to pervert or to do my own kind of thing in ministry. Rather, Paul says, I am pure. I am faithful to my heavenly king. I am faithful to the one who has sent me out, the one who has commissioned me. I am not here to please man or to puff men up, but I am here in purity. I'm here to please my heavenly king, the one who has sent me to herald the divine message. But he continues on in verse 17, speaking of his purity and his motives, he says, we speak in Christ. We speak as one in relationship with Christ, as one abiding in Christ. 
in the sight of God. A term in the sight of refers to one's posture, their attitude, speaks of reverence, of humility, of, of as one lay down before another. A similar expression in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, which I'll be covering here pretty soon. Paul says he speaks as one under God's examination. It's as if Paul views himself under the the microscope of divine judgment in which he knows that God is searching the the nooks and the crannies of his heart to to see if there's anything that is impure. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, well, I don't know of anything against me. Nevertheless, it is God who examines me. Paul says, my conscience is clean. I am not here for the money. I'm not here for the approval. I am here for God. I'm here for Christ. I'm here for you, church. So Paul shows us that our inner motives are just as essential as our outer actions, that we are to have purity inwardly as we are outwardly. So then who, right? Who is adequate in the ministry of the Lord? Who is adequate for these things? Paul says it is one whose ministry is characterized by inner and outward purity. Omega, this this is the the same qualification that we are encouraged to embody. That we are to strive for purity in our ministry. Ask ourselves, as we go out, as we serve in the parking lot duty, as we stand there as a greeter at the door, as we serve as an usher, as we make coffee, as we come here together to love each other as a Sunday school class or participate in that home fellowship, what is really driving your motivation? What's the, the motives of your heart? If you could place yourself under God's microscope, if he could examine your heart, your motives for what you're doing, would you say that it is for my Lord? It is pure. It is, as far as I know, as far as my conscience can tell, for the glory of my God and not for the praise of men. Not so everybody would say, oh, man, you're so great. You're so awesome. So wonderful in ministry, right? It is for God's glory. So that end is the first qualification that is pure motives. And notice we don't get that from ourselves. This is God who enables us. Come to the second qualification, that is changed lives. Changed lives. We all know the importance of a a good commendation letter. If you've ever applied for a job, if you've ever interviewed someone for a job, you know that having a, a solid reference letter attached to your resume is, is crucial, right? This company doesn't know you. Right? They, all they see is what you write down on paper. Or they've had a however long minute conversation with you in an interview. They don't know you well, and so they want to make a reference call. They want to call somebody who does know you, who can give you accommodation, who can say, oh, yeah, Wes, yeah, he does work hard, just like he says he does on that, uh, on that interview. And so then we know that good references, those who can commend us for our work, are vital. Paul says here in this second qualification that he has the best recommendation letter. While the purity of his life stands as a strong testimony showing his adequacy, it's actually the changed lives of the Corinthians which commend his adequacy for the job. He begins in verse one with two questions. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? 
or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? Recommendation letters in ancient times were not only common, but they carried an important role in society. One scholar concerning this writes, quote, travelers wishing to avoid the grubby and often sordid environment of roadside inns relied on local hospitality. To help them obtain it, they carried letters of recommendation from people familiar with the region being traversed. Letters of reference were also written to introduce one party to another, frequently with a view to social advancement or to other practical assistance. So we see here that recommendation letters, commendations, they were vital, they were essential, they were common in New Testament times. In fact, the New Testament speaks quite often about such letters of commendation. In 3 John, probably one you're familiar with, uh, we see there the Apostle John commends Demetrius to Gaius. He gives him a letter of commendation to tell Gaius that, yeah, this guy Demetrius, he is faithful. He walks in the truth. Paul himself was not against letters of commendation. Romans chapter 16, verse 1, we see that Paul commends Phoebe. He says that she is a faithful sister in the Lord, one whom the church in Rome should receive in a worthy manner. You could argue that the entire letter of Philemon is, in a sense, a commendation letter of Onesimus' life, of how he has changed, how God has worked in him, and why now Philemon needed to welcome him back. The Corinthian church also was no stranger to these letters. In Acts chapter 18, verse 27, they said that the brothers in Ephesus wrote a commendation letter for Apollos as they sent him over to the church there in Corinth. So as we come to these verses, we have to ask, what really is the issue going on? What is Paul speaking of here in these two questions? Well, it doesn't seem that the issue is that Paul was commending himself. In fact, as he goes throughout this letter, it would seem that he actually is commending himself. He goes on and says it in multiple times in chapter 4, verse 2, chapter 6, verse 4, other places where he says, I am commending myself to you, church. And so the issue isn't that he is looking down upon his commendation, nor is the issue that he's looking down upon commendation letters in general. Rather, the issue is how his opponents flaunted their self-absorbed adequacy and abused these commendation letters. In other words, what he's saying is, I am not commending you, commending myself to you like these opponents did. I'm not boasting in what I can accomplish. I'm not boasting in what I can do but rather what the Lord is doing in and through me. I'm not boasting, I'm not saying that commendation letters are, are bad, but rather how these guys are flaunting their commendation letters. We see there in verse one, he says, or do we need as some? Word for some points to the false apostles, to these opponents. He says, some of you are like this. They're like some dirty hometown politician flaunting a letter from the federal government in order to, to weasel their way into some political office. So Paul's saying that these two, these peddlers, they're parading a letter of commendation around as if they have some kind of human-generated authority in order to sneak their way into the church doors. And to make matters worse, they were telling the church, they were saying, hey church, where's Paul's letters at? Why doesn't Paul have any kind of documentation? You need to go and tell Paul to find his letters, and then you should trust him. And so that was what they were doing. They were 
saying that the church needed to tell Paul to prove his letters of authority. Commentators speculate as to what exactly these letters of recommendation might have looked like. They could have been genuine letters, perhaps because they are con artists. They were able to dupe some church in Judea or Jerusalem to produce for them some kind of commendation letter. It could be that they had just forged these letters, that they were able to, to create a, a forgery in, in which to, um, to uh, confuse or uh, to dupe the church there in Corinth. And so whatever the case may be, whatever um, was happening there, the Corinthian church had been impressed by their prominence. And so what do they do? They call upon Paul. They say, Paul, give us your letter. How does Paul respond? Are you kidding me? Are you, are you serious, church, right now? You're telling me that I need a commendation letter? You are my letter, church. Look at verse 2. You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. He says, look, I, I have something far better for you. You want something that man wrote? Look at your own lives. You are our letter. You are our proof. You are our accommodation. That your changed life speaks louder and more authoritatively than any handwritten document anyone could ever uh, produce. He says, if you need to know, church, why I'm adequate, why the Lord has made me fit for this ministry, just look at your lies for the proof. It would be like if you were working at a job after five years, and all of a sudden your boss came up to you, despite all the hard work, despite all the great things you had done in, in your job, he were to come up to you and say, hey, by the way, where's your reference letter? Where's somebody that can prove that you work hard, that you are a good employee? You look at him like, are you serious? Five years of hard work. That is my proof. In the same way, Paul's saying, look at your lives, church. Look how God has so worked in you. I mean, don't you remember, Corinthians, who you were? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, Paul says that you were fornicators, you were idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. Church, that was you. That was you before the work of the gospel came. That was you before the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ came. But now, but now, church, you are washed. You are sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Church, you're in our hearts now. He says there in verse 2, you're in our hearts. You, we carry around your letter. We carry around what God worked in and through you. We carry it around everywhere we go. We showcase your changed lives as the proof of God's divine enablement of us and our ministry. Not only does he say that, that uh, you're written in our hearts, he also says there at the end of verse 2 that you are known and read by all men, church. That all people, they see you. Those in the church see your changed lives. Those in your family, in your own household, they see your changed lives. Those out there on the streets, the other citizens there in Corinth, they see your changed lives. Those you work with see your changed lives, church, and they see that it is God who is at work within you to transform you and to change you into the image of his beloved son. Church, you are our letter. It goes on in verse three, it says, 
It's not that just you are our letter. In fact, let me back up. Let me pause for a second, church. You are Christ's letter. Verse three, he says, being manifested, that you are a letter of Christ. You see, Paul wasn't the source of their salvation. Paul doesn't point to himself and say, ha, look at what I did. He doesn't boast in himself, but rather, you are a letter of Christ. It was the Lord Jesus who was the divine author of this salvific epistle. Paul, on the other hand, what is he? Verse three, he's just a simple servant. He says that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us. The word for cared for is the same word we get service, minister, the word we get deacon. It shows that, that Paul just sees himself here as a simple servant. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes in an agricultural metaphor. We remember that, right? He says, I'm just the sower. Apollos, he just came and watered. But who gets the glory? God, because God is the one who is the grower. We're just servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. So there Paul says that as he ministered the gospel, it was as if Christ himself was pinning a heavenly letter in the hearts of the Corinthians through Paul's ministry. And the means by which the Lord Jesus did that was, verse three, not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. The work Christ accomplished among the Corinthians was not mere human effort, right? It was not something temporal. It was not something fading like ink on a page. This was not a human letter, but rather this was the Holy Spirit himself. This was the Holy Spirit, his work, who was the eternal and unfading ink, creating a new letter within the hearts of the Corinthians. And notice, where does the Spirit of the living God, where does he write this letter? He writes not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. As the Holy Spirit took the gospel and caused it to be a, a diamond-pointed pen engraving or inscribing the word of God upon the hearts of the hearers. And we're gonna look closer at this next time, next week, Lord willing, but Paul makes a clear reference here to the old and new covenant, the contrast that we see between old and new. You see, in, instead of using the normal terms, why doesn't Paul just talk about papyrus? Why doesn't he talk about parchment? That was what ancient letters were written upon. No, Paul makes a specific point here. He is making a specific theological statement. He is trying to draw a contrast here by using the word tablet. In the Old Testament, as you remember, as you know, God wrote the law upon a tablet of stone. But in the New Covenant, as Pastor Tom just talked about this morning, Ezekiel chapter 36 and Jeremiah, we see that the new covenant, however, God promised to write his law upon human hearts. Not tablets of stone, but on tablets of new heart. What Paul is referring here then is to regeneration. The regenerating work of the Holy Spirit promised in the new covenant. As Paul cared for the church, as he preached the gospel, as he shepherded Christ's sheep, the Holy Spirit, his work became the ink with which Christ wrote. Right, the, the old letter that was the Corinthians has been burned up. It's been shredded. It's been set apart, thrown away into the recycle bin, never to be seen again. 
now Christ has written a new letter. The Holy Spirit has taken the gospel upon the hearts of the Corinthians and he has produced a new letter, something so impressive, so glorious, so earth-shattering that it is fit to be written in the Lamb's book of life. Paul says, you are a letter of Christ. Everyone sees now the work of the Spirit of the living God in your hearts. Corinthians, you have been born again. Your lives have been changed. Your lives have been remade. Brothers and sisters, as we're reading this, as you think of this, ask yourself, if others were to read my life, if, if I was a letter, if it were, read before this watching world, what would they read? Or would, would they read a letter that is still enslaved and shackled by sin, by those still dead in their trespasses and sins, or do they read a new letter in Christ? And if you are in Christ, if you are now a new letter, then glory in God, right? Go forth in the strength that God supplies. That, that this is the, the true commendation of ministry. That as new letters in Christ, as those now divinely enabled to partake in the authentic ministry of the new covenant, that our true commendation is not found in our programs, it's not found in our activities, it's not found in how many people we can fill in the worship center, that it's not found in how plush our church budget is, but rather it is found in changed lives, and changed lives, men and women in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Who is adequate for ministry? Those empowered by the Holy Spirit, seeking to make an eternal difference and the lives of people through evangelism and edification. Paul goes on to add a third qualification. This third qualification is divine enablement. This is what his main point has been this whole time. Verse four, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Here's my confidence, church. Here is why I can stand before you as one who is confidently um, adequate. Notice, it's not through him but it's through Christ. Through Christ, toward God, I can have confidence in ministry knowing that my work in the Lord, the fruit that it's bearing, one, it's not mine, and two, it's abounding to the glory of God. That is God at work. He says in verse five, not that we are adequate, not we, that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy, it is from God. It is from God. God, unlike his opponents who boasted, right? They boasted in their own adequacy, who took pride in their own qualifications. Paul says, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I, my confidence is not in myself. My confidence is in Christ. My confidence is in the Holy Spirit at work within me. My confidence is in the Father, who just like Moses, who just like Jeremiah, who just like Gideon, now makes me adequate, fit, a servant, for him, for his glory. It's the same adequacy that we have to find for our life, for our ministry. Right? He is the source of our strength. That it's him, it's, it's our savior through the power of his spirit. That apart from God, we can do nothing. In fact, in fact Paul will go on to say that he's just an earthen vessel through whom God showcases his glory. That he is weak, 
but in his weakness, God's grace enables him for the work. His purity in ministry, it's all God. His preaching of the gospel, it's all God. His shepherding of the sheep, it's all God. The changed lives of the Corinthians, it's all God. Church, the, the Corinthians needed to hear that, right? A church obsessed with ostentatious displays of pride and spiritual haughtiness. A church caught up with a group of false apostles who boasted in their own wits, abilities, and resources. But not only do the Corinthians need to hear that, we need to hear that. I need to hear that. I mean, I cannot go a day without pride beating on the door of my heart saying, Wes, you got this. You can do this. Trust in yourself. You got the resources. You got the wisdom. You got the power. You got the strength. You don't need to turn to the Lord. You don't need to trust in him. You don't need to pray. Omega, that is the pride of our heart trying to say you have adequacy in yourself. Here Paul says no. We can't even bear the smallest bit of fruit apart from the divine enablement of our Lord. Our sufficiency must be in Christ. We can't trust in ourselves. We have to trust in the Lord. We can't close our heart to him, but we must turn to him in prayer. We can't look to our own fleshly resources, but we must ask God to help us to exercise the spiritual gifts that he has given us by the Holy Spirit. And that every day we make it a pattern of our lives to lean, to lean upon the Lord. As we do, as we trust in his adequacy, as we trust in his sufficiency, we look back at the results and we say, Lord, not I, not I, but the grace of God in me. Who is adequate? Paul says those who confidently trust in God's divine enablement. Lastly, we have the fourth qualification. This one's gonna be really short because I'm intentionally leaving you with a cliffhanger here so that you'll come back next week because what we see in the rest of verse six all the way down through verse 18 is Paul giving us one of the most extensive treatments on the glory of the new covenant in all of scripture. And so then as we see in verse six, Paul says that God has, our adequacy is from God who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul says, here's why I'm adequate. Because God has divinely enabled me to be a servant, to be a servant of a greater calling, to be a servant of a better covenant. Hebrews chapter eight, verse six says, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. You see, Paul's opponents hung their hat upon the old. They hung their hat upon the old covenant, upon what the um, Old Testament, the law taught. Paul says, now we have a new covenant established by the blood of Christ, inaugurated through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We have a greater calling. So who then is adequate for these things? Paul says it is those who trust in a greater high priest. It is those who trust in him who offered himself as a better sacrifice, who is mediating a better covenant, and who is enacting better promises. These are the ones who have been enabled to serve in a greater calling. As we close our time here, I want to leave you with this quote from R. Kent Hughes. In his commentary, he says, quote, 
All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. Brothers and sisters, authentic ministry requires those who would renounce their own abilities and look to the Lord's enablement. May the Lord, your God, enable you today to be pure in your motives, to serve so as to see changed lives, so as to call upon him for your sufficiency, and so that you would see your greater calling. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful truth, Lord, a, a text, a truth that honestly many of us are familiar with, Lord, that we know that as we have been called into this ministry, that we are not to rely upon our own flesh or strength, but God, every day it seems that pride is nevertheless beating upon us, wanting to be let in, but God, I pray, help us to cast off our own self-sufficiency, to cast off our own adequacy and like Paul to to say that not I but Christ through me help us Lord to go out to serve and love one another in the strength that you supply through your Holy Spirit and the gifts that you have given us may you be glorified now in Christ's name amen